Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Um, morning. I actually am uh, up a little bit early with my Joe uh, as I've got to hop on a plane and get over to the academy meeting and it's be big, in the JBJS booth uh, with week. our team and show people what's going on there. And uh, I wish I could say I was looking forward to another airport experience, but it's, it's spring break here in Minnesota. So airports have just been not a pleasant experience. So yeah, I need yeah, my I'm Joe. Well, I can tell you that having just been on uh, an international flight and going one, I'll be heading to Zurich, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what you look at, uh, depending on you look at missing the AOS. But um, yeah, same thing. I just hold my breath, close my eyes, and just hope I can get onto that plane very quickly. Uh, and once you're on the plane, you just kind of close your eyes, <laughs> hold your breath, and wait till you get to the next port and uh, keep going. But I think things are opening up. So yeah. let's hope. Let's hope. No question yes. about it. I think that's why the airports are so busy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breathe easy through your M95 mask, right? Uh, you absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so this is one of our, uh, what's the, the latest stuff going on in our respective publications. And so yesterday I picked up the March 16th edition of the uh, journal and, I, and uh, I've got one thing I just want to bring to the audience's attention, which I think is a, is a major accomplishment. And that's the international consensus meeting group led by Jay Parvizi has now published uh, their extensive work on DTE. And we hope to be able to interview Jay about these findings, but basically it's a Delphi process that involved over 600 researchers of all types, uh, orthopedic surgeons, uh, anesthesiologists, chest physicians, et cetera, and uh, used the Delphi method and reviewed basically every single published reference on DTE musculoskeletal injury and disease. So it is a huge compendium that has now been published at JBJS, which is a one year long effort. And I hope the audience will have a look at that. It's uh, available at the website. And again, we'll, uh, we'll bring uh, Jay on to uh, talk about that monumental effort, which I think is going to advance uh, the clinical management of this question of prophylaxis and treatment. So then as I, I was actually unaware since, you know, I, I think your experience is like mine. I'm kind of unaware of what is showing up in that particular edition because I saw it last three months ago. So right. I can't yeah, yeah. Neural remember. Fits into the, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. So the slot. Here, yeah. Here, here I am surprised to see where I got to find the reference now. It is on page 512, a publication from your group. Mm. On, uh, I think I know the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I know the on one. Yeah, yeah. Intermittent. Yeah. In, intimate yeah. partner violence uh, during recovery from orthopedic injury, uh, and it, it's fascinating uh, and distressing at the same time. Uh, the how common this is. I know that your group has been working on this uh, for a decade or more, uh, and then you've published several articles and maybe. Uh, Maybe you could talk about the publication that kind of resulted in this follow-up publication. 
Sure. I mean, and and so I would say in, uh, at Ortho Evidence as well, um, we have the um, what I think was one of the important original pieces, and this was a, a an ACE report uh, uh, under the title of the prevalence of intimate partner violence in women presenting to orthopedic clinics. And this was in 2013, how quickly time flies. Um, but it was a very large um, study, Mark, it was about just under 3,000 women across 12 centers. And really the question just was to, to, uh, to have a situation in which they were asked about their prior experiences. And I can tell you uh, prior to this, there wasn't a lot of data that suggested that you know, uh, and put it this way, among orthopedic surgeons, there wasn't a lot of data that would convince them if they were potentially skeptical about, you know, well, this is happening in the community, but, you know, my patients aren't coming in because I would know that. I would know that, you know, they're having these injuries. And as it turned out that uh, when asked, one in three women in orthopedic clinics around the world, US, Canada, and a number of other uh, countries stated that they had had a, at least once in their life, had experienced intimate partner violence. I remember intimate partner violence can go anywhere from the spectrum of, of uh, mental, sexual, all the way through physical abuse to, you know, the most serious of types of injuries that, for example, orthopedics would see. One in six of them had said, you know, I, I've actually had an experience in the last year, and one in 50 had said, I'm actually here because of it. Now, here's the point. In that study in 2013, none of those women who had completed this private um, confidential questionnaire were asked by their attending surgeon about uh, what was happening. So in other words, it, it wasn't quite disclosed at that period of time. We could go on for a long time, as I've learned from experts who have helped educate me, that there are a host of reasons why a victim wouldn't um, you know, disclose something at that first visit. That is the reason, Mark, that the paper that is in JBGS in my mind is so vitally important because that became, in my mind, the sirening to our orthopedic community that orthopedic surgeons are vital second chances uh, in this cycle of abuse to stop this abuse or at least help women get help uh, in this particular. And I'm talking primarily about violence against women here. We understand that violence in any form to anybody is wrong and should not be tolerated, but in the context of this study it was violence against women. And the truth is, if you look at the data that's presented in JBGS, which is, I think, striking, yep, is that there was a percentage of women, more than 10%, I think it's like 12% of women, who actually disclosed after their first visit, which meant the orthopedic surgeon, he or she building a relationship with the patient is critically important because women over time started disclosing because they felt either more comfortable, it was the right time, and there's a sense of safety in doing so. We don't know the outcomes of that disclosure, but we do know that that's what happened. So in that perspective, uh, it vindicates why we can't just assume that social services will handle this. We can't just assume that emergency physicians will be able to identify a woman. The fact is only 15 to 20% disclose on the first time they meet um, a physician in the healthcare environment in the first place. So orthopedic surgeons seeing you know, patients for a long period of time uh, really have this are really in a very important uh, role and opportunity yeah. to do so. That paper in JBGS is so important for that reason. Yeah. Now, um, so this is a nine-year interval from when the, the the big study was published and this one. Yeah. Do you do you think that the scripted questions that many of our centers use 
use uh, when uh, rooming patients? Uh, do you feel safe at home? That, that type of thing has, has helped uh, encourage women to disclose? You know, I, I think, I, you know, we tried a, a number of studies, you know, in which we said, okay, okay, you know, and we asked a number of, you know, victims who had who given us some insight. And they said, what helped them a lot generally was the following, walking into a clinic and having a sense just by looking around because you're, you know, you're very, very intensely aware of your surroundings um, to, you know, is this clinic one that's, you know, it would be supportive of potentially me, you know, um, you know, mentioning something or are they just going to dismiss it so they look for literature maybe a poster you know that not all are not all broken bones tell the same story or something that would help them understand okay they get the story and, and and really um the opening it was time it wasn't it was just knowing you know that that nonverbal communication uh physician patient communication that would suggest um that there's an openness to hearing about it but you know something as simple as you know, just how are things how are things at home uh, rather than are you safe at home, um, gave them the opportunity. You know, it's it's no different than you know uh, all the other things we ask. You know, you know, do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do this? Do you do that? We have right. we have so many things that are just just standard. Um, yeah. So I think the concept of just simply, uh, you know, is there anything else you know that I need to know? Anything else I can help you with today? All those sorts of general, what seem to be generic, openings, yeah. um, can be interpreted in very different ways, as I've learned from uh, you know women who are looking at that moment to, to determine whether they want to say something. Yeah, so it's establishing a, a trusting relationship yeah. with the patient right. like we normally do. And, and perhaps the, the good news here is that there is increased awareness uh, in our community and, and in the future we can do a, a even better job uh, at helping to solve these uh, issues. And, and Mark, and one thing I will tell you though is that I'm, I think you know this, but I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate it, is that this whole area of inquiry happened during my fellowship year with you back in 2003-2004 because Sonia, my partner who was uh, who was with me was you know uh, got work at in Minneapolis at the Minneapolis Domestic Abuse Project and she'd always come back and I'd come back from the clinic and she'd say you know tell me about this pelvic rami or ramus fracture. Yeah. I go why, why do you why are you asking this? I go in our in our whole life you've really never cared about this injury or these injuries. And she goes, oh, because these women keep coming in with us. I said, what, what do you mean, what's happening? And he goes, well, they, surely they're seen at the hospital. I said, well, let me go find out. And that led to this whole uh, area of inquiry. So the, the pivotal original paper that came out in the Journal of Trauma in 2005, back then the Journal of Trauma, I don't think yeah. it's that journal anymore, uh, was really looking at the 292 injuries in the number of women who had presented to the domestic Minneapolis Domestic Abuse Project. And I'll, uh, in many ways, that fellowship with you was uh, life-changing, but for another reason, too. Yeah, you got immune to the cold a bit more, too. Oh, your, gosh, yes, but, yes. Yeah, so, Part, I, yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, you've been at this a long time now. What, what's the direction of, of your team on this topic now? What, what are you working on? Yeah. So now, yeah, now it's, it's been so, so it went from, you know, and the, the thing that is so uh, incredibly important about, and needs to be said about our, our orthopedic fraternity is that when presented with data, any individual who was potentially skeptical about the importance of being an advocate flipped overnight. No one can argue, you know, they, they shouldn't have needed all this data, but in fact they did. 
um, and orthopedic um, advocacy, at least in Canada, and I suspect, I, oh, I know it's happening in, at the American Academy, and I certainly know it's happening in a number of journals as well, and editors have made it a really important issue that orthopedic surgeons should be in many ways involved in the identification and ultimate uh, you know, assistance of women uh, and men uh, who are undergoing violence of any uh, type. So we've seen that become a massive, massively important issue. The big question though was, great, I want to do something. I see this is important. How and what do I do? I don't have the tools um, or the comfort level uh, to be doing this. And there, there was a misperception, Mark, that orthopedic surgeons now who had clinics of maybe that you know, uh, uh, you know, fifty to maybe even a hundred, uh, you know, patients through a thing would somehow now just be completely landlocked, spending an hour uh, with someone who disclosed. And that isn't the point. The point is, right. you know, is developing the tools and the support system to allow that to happen. So, where we're going next is a program actually led by Sheila Sprague, um, someone I know who's known to you, but she's a scientist at McMaster now and a faculty there. Uh, called Educate. And really it's a program that's online that's creating champions at hospitals and at clinics worldwide. And right now it's being piloted all through Canada and we're looking to expand it beyond orthopedics actually um, and giving them tools uh, and training to be able to uh, you know, make their environments and their systems such that you can efficiently uh, help um, those in need. Well, that's great. You, you've made a huge difference uh, in this area, and you and Sonia are. Oh, thank be, you. Uh, yeah. yeah, thank uh, you. Congratulated yeah. for for your years of work in this uh, area. So let's switch gears now. Um, you and I are big proponents of large, simple trials, but there are some questions where you're never going to get there, uh, either because of numbers uh, or complexity of the question, or or some other factor. And there, there is still, I know you and I both agree, a, a place for a well-done uh, analyses of existing databases. And I, I point to this article, uh, which is back a little bit farther from uh, my colleagues uh, down Highway 52 at the Mayo Clinic, and they use their uh, database on knee arthroplasty, which has been going for decades, to look at the clinical question of what happens to knee replacement, which follows a high tibial osteotomy? As you know, there's been a uh, waxing and waning interest in high tibial osteotomy for treating unicompartmental arthritis through the years. And one of the hesitancies that produced a, 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 lack, a declining interest was that the knee replacement afterwards would be complicated and not have as good a result. So what they did was they identified in their very large database, 140 bilateral knee replacement patients. Um, so 70 patients with 140 knees, and they had one knee which had never had a prior procedure and the other one that had a previous high tibial osteotomy uh, as, uh, uh, and converted. And the, the time from osteotomy to conversion was around 15 years. And these patients were followed uh, for a, a long time. Uh, and the range of follow-up uh, was, was very long, six to 40 years. So there, there were patients who had had their, osteo their knee total knee after the osteotomy for as long as 25 years. And then they did uh, validated uh, outcomes, uh, the uh, KSS 
the score, Mead Society score, and they did the forgotten joint score, uh, and then asked patients which needs did they prefer. Uh, and fascinating, um, when you look at the outcomes, the, the, the patients, 62% stated that the needs were equivalent at the follow-up, and 19% actually preferred the knee that had had the prior osteotomy. Uh, and there was no increase in uh, clinical complications following the conversion. So again, a very complicated analytic type of question, small number of subjects, uh, which is gonna make us look carefully at the statistics used and things like that. But I, I think a valuable contribution and uh, just, just points out, I think that there are occasions when databases like these can be used to answer rather specific questions. Now, ideally, if we had 500 subjects instead of 70 uh, with 140 knees, but I think it's valuable. And I, I, I'm pleased to see it that, that the reviewers thought so as well. Yeah, and you're absolutely, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, questions like this, you know, which is what is the, you know, what is the outcome um, and are the outcomes of those with prior HDOs uh, and hardware in place, for example, different than those who are having, you know, a primary total knee in this case, you know, in many ways, I think uh, I always uh, was taught that, well, you know, if, if you're having, a, a, you know, um, it's functionally thinking of it as a revision, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a surgery, even though it's a primary knee, it's, you know, it's, it's in a complicated system. The way to do that really would have been a large observational cohort. You know, you'd have two groups and you try to balance and you could use all kinds of things, propensity scoring and all the fancy, uh, you know, methodologies that people talk about. Clinical trials would be very difficult in this just because of the numbers. Yeah. So, I mean, it is really uh, interesting that, you know, that again, the group at the Mayo Clinic has, has put forth this data and congratulations to them, uh, to them for doing so, because you're right. You know, you have an internal control there. Now, that internal controls, as you know, create a little bit of confounding as to, you know, you know, there is the glow of where, you know, yeah. if it's because the unit of analysis is the human that's had two procedures. But, you know, clearly you, you can see where failure is. You can see where complications are. And the mere fact that they say, I, I don't know the difference in two thirds of the time. Pretty, uh, pretty compelling reason um, that would support your hypothesis that maybe in fact it is, you know, techniques have gone very far. And quite frankly, we have to give kudos to the surgeons doing those procedures, you know, that they've advanced those techniques in a way that make it, make it. Um, uh, so, you know, the outcomes being so um, important and so good. Now, one, of, one of the things that I always point out when talking about the responsibilities of uh, being the editor is that often we publish things to provoke confirmatory studies. So I imagine that this analysis is going to prompt colleagues around the world who have large joint replacement databases to look at this question and tease out the data to see if it's confirmatory. And uh, I think we agree this is not gonna be something we can apply an RCT to. So uh, confirming these findings will be very helpful. Yep, Absolutely. there's lots of functions for a journal. and. One of them is to publish things that stimulate other confirmatory or even better research designs. And that's one of the things uh, I'll be speaking about in, at the Academy is that number one point, it's the research question. It needs to be refined, needs to involve colleagues that give input uh, before it, the, 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 uh, uh, the research can be successful. You know, it's funny that you bring this up because 
my last few, I've been thinking somewhat uh, on this topic of problem solving versus problem finding. And I think, yeah. you know, we spend a lot of our time and we teach our trainees and residents, you know, they, they get all the books and then they see a five volume of whatever, the, you know, the, the flavor of textbook you're reading these days for orthopedics. But, and they think, my goodness, like that is all of orthopedics. Uh, at, at our age, we start thinking, well, you know, actually that's just a fraction of really what we know. The majority of stuff we don't know uh, and it's really all the other stuff that is really important because that's where our future is that's where our field is that's where the american academy uh, and all the other major groups and jbgs are looking to you know uh, stimulate questions so i think if we stimulate questions we're doing a good job yeah absolutely and you bring up uh the fact that it's 20 years since you were here in the twin cities doing a fellowship mm -hmm. time has flown and i can't believe it so many very important contributions to our field and uh, I look forward to another 20 years of collaborating. So, Can't wait. Okay. <laughs> Thanks and I'm going to finish my coffee and head to the airport. I'm on my second. I'm on my second so I'm ahead of you. So. <laughs> you're always you're always faster and better than you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. Bye.